Welcome to First Do No Harm with Massachusetts Citizens for Life board member and physician, Dr. Mark Rollo. This broadcast will focus on medical ethics from a Catholic perspective and address abortion, physician-assisted suicide, contraception, natural family planning, IVF, healthcare proxy, and other topics. Hello and welcome back to First Do No Harm, a show about medical ethics from a Catholic perspective. I'm Dr. Mark Rollo. I have discussed in the past couple of shows that Massachusetts is in serious jeopardy of becoming the 12th jurisdiction in the United States to legalize assisted suicide. I have pointed out how the death lobby uses euphemism to cloak their evil intention. They speak of death with dignity, compassion and choices, medical aid in dying, and end-of-life options. But we already have ethical end-of-life options of hospice and palliative care. Suicide is not dignified for the victim or the society that allows it to happen. It is certainly not dignified for a physician, a healer, to become a killer. Choice is an illusion for the poor, minorities, marginalized, and those with disabilities who will be steered and have been steered towards suicide by profit-minded insurance companies and deficit-ridden governments. True compassion literally means to suffer with the person while trying to ease his suffering as well as to find meaning, purpose, and hope in the suffering. By contrast, the purveyors of despair and death seek to end suffering by ending the life of the suffering patient. Assisted suicide opponent Wesley J. Smith has said, We must not allow pro-assisted suicide activists to euphemize, then euthanize. Today I will play the third and final part of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors, international speaker regarding life issues and author of the recently published book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. She will continue to expound on these principles and convey more inspirational stories of how suffering unleashes love, and how love unleashes life. Let us first, as always, begin with prayer. For as stated by the U.S. Catholic bishops, only with prayer, prayer that storms the heavens for justice and mercy, prayer that cleanses our hearts and souls, will the culture of death that surrounds us today be replaced with a culture of life. O God, let us never forget that we are our brother's keeper. 
especially when our brother expresses the desire to die. We should say, as Jesus said, when he heard about the illness of Lazarus, this illness is not to end in death, but it is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus was speaking of spiritual death. Help us, Lord, to realize that allowing and even assisting our brother to take his own life, regardless of the circumstances, is to participate in spiritual as well as physical death. Help us also to realize that you came that we might have abundant life, even in our darkest times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, part three of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors. The interview picks up with a discussion of Brittany Maynard, the young woman who took her own life in Oregon after she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. We discuss how this tragedy is compounded by the influence it has on the society in general. The other thing that, that came to mind when I was reading about Brittany Maynard, I know contemporaneously there was another woman who lived closer to me in, in uh, Connecticut, and her name was Maggie Carner, K-A-R-N-E-R. And she talked about Brittany committing suicide. Well, Maggie Carner had the same kind of brain tumor. Mm. And she was talking to um, a person who was doing a column on her situation. And she said uh, people like uh, Brittany Maynard doing what she did put pressure on people like me to uh, you know, do the right thing and, and puts this subtle burden that she should kill herself, that she has a somehow a duty to die. Yeah. Uh, that I don't know if you ever heard of her, but that's that's another um, example about um, somebody somebody else's choice can influence you. And I I think it was actually uh, in uh, chapter nine when you kind of talked about that and you said. The title of that was, Not All Choices Are Equal, But They Create a Ripple Effect Either Way. And I loved mm -hmm. the quote from Martin Luther King, who said in his 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail, he said, uh, what you quoted in your book, we are caught up in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And that's, I thought that was a beautiful point. Yeah, it's so important because although I'm not familiar with the specific story you share of the other woman with the brain cancer, her reaction of saying, you know, it's people like Brittany that, that make people like me feel almost like we have a duty yeah. to die like Brittany did, it reinforces this point that another way of phrasing what Dr. King said is the old uh, the old poem, 
um, no man is an island, right? Yes. John Donne's line, no man is an island, that, that when people support assisted suicide, they often do so from the perspective of, it's my body, it's my life, mm-hmm. it has no bearing on you, mm-hmm. so let me do what I want. But we are connected. We are impacted by the presence of another and the absence of another. Uh, wherever there's suicide, for example, we typically will see copycat suicide. Right. And so it naturally follows that where there is assisted suicide, there's also going to be an increase in other assisted That's suicides. Right. We see this again back in my own country just in the last five yes. years. Every year, the rate of assisted suicide is is increasing right. because we're influenced by the example others set. Exactly. So that's why actually there's a, there's a a huge responsibility. You know, I think of the uh, and there's so many versions of the Superman movies, but uh, I think it was around 2007. I watched the one. I forget the the actor in that particular one, but around 07, one of the Superman movies, you know, has this scene where Peter Parker before he's officially Superman, but he's getting his powers, is in the car with his uncle Ben. And Uncle Ben says, remember, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And we must not underestimate the power of our influence. And that if, if the end, you know, if I were to end my life, to think that that wouldn't impact people left behind in my social circle and so forth, uh, is naive to think it wouldn't impact them. Uh, Very much my absence and my example could influence others to do the same thing. So therefore, I need to use that power of my influence mm-hmm. responsibly and mm-hmm. say, okay, then then I need to teach people per- perseverance. Mm-hmm. I need to teach people um, humility. I need to teach people whatever it is, but um, positive, virtuous things, not right. succumbing to vice. And, well, and speaking of that, maybe this would be a good little story to, to uh, end on, but I love the story about uh, the nine-year-old boy, John O'Leary, burn victim, uh, who um, was influenced by the legendary baseball broadcaster Jack Buck. And I'm a big baseball fan, like a lot of people are. Okay. And I just loved that story. Yeah, John O'Leary's amazing. I was really blessed to have him endorse my book. Um, he's he's known very much in the secular world as connected. I mean, his book was endorsed by Brene Brown, and he's just an awesome motivational speaker, but he's also Catholic. Mm-hmm. And he has an incredible story where he had observed when he was nine years old um, some kids who had a little puddle of oil and then they put a flame on it Mm. so he tried to replicate it at home in the garage but what he did was he lit a flame and then he poured oil on it Mm. and so it just exploded into this massive fiery flame that uh set his house on fire but burned 100 percent of this little nine-year-old boy's body and doctors said look he he is not going to survive But miraculously, he did, and here he is alive decades later, thriving, a motivational speaker, you know, national best-selling author. He's mm-hmm. married, he has children, um, but part of his journey to healing was, you know, as a nine-year-old boy, he also, he loved baseball yeah. like you, and, yeah. and he loved listening to Jack Buck. Yeah. And so, through an incredible series of events where, again, it shows the interconnectedness of people, one of the neighbors of the O'Leary family had a friend, and they mentioned to the friend, oh, pray for this family, their little boy's been burned in a fire, he's in the hospital. 
And that friend told another friend, oh, you know, pray for this little boy who told another friend. Who, who, and it, it went all the way around to, I think it was the daughter of Jack Buck, mm. ended up telling her dad, hey, there's this little boy mm-hmm. that's been burned. And so Jack was moved to go to the hospital. Yeah, and he got amazing. special permission to be, I mean, no one except for the parents would have been allowed in that ICU room. But yes. they let Jack Buck in and, and, and Jack spoke to him and said, kid, don't give up. Yeah. And he, he heard that voice. He recognized that voice from all yeah, the time right. he listened to the game. Yeah. And Jack was so moved, he thought the boy would die. He was so moved that he um, ended up staying in touch with him. And then when he started to recover, he sent John a baseball with yes. one of the baseball players' signatures yeah. on it. And he knew that John, um, because of the burns, had to have part of his uh, fingers removed, so his mm-hmm. hands were quite deformed, mm-hmm. and he couldn't write. Mm-hmm. And so Jack essentially helped John learn to write by saying, I'm only going to send you another signed autographed baseball if you write me a thank you note. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> he was so motivated to learn with his little stubs how to write again because yeah. he wanted another autographed baseball that he wrote the thank you, and then he got another baseball that was autographed by another player, and Jack Buck said the same thing. You write me a thank you, I'll send you another one. And so John credits Jack as being a huge positive influence in his life to motivate him to um, overcome the hardships that he was facing. So it's an example of how we can be an influence for great good as opposed to an influence for yeah, that's wonderful. And uh, opening uh, opening day is just 10 days away, so that makes me even more excited for the <laughs> beginning of the season. Well, I th- this has been wonderful to uh, talk to you about this, and uh, I wondered if you had any last uh, thoughts or last comments. And also, where can people get your book? Awesome. Well, yes, people can go to my website, which is loveunleasheslife.com, and just click on the button that says books, mm-hmm. and that will point people to the link on Amazon where they can order Start With What? 10 Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. You can also contact me, read my blog, see my upcoming events. Um, and, you know, just my final thought is that one of the points I make in my book, one of my, my dearest childhood friends became a family physician, and she and I once spoke at a high school together on the topic of assisted suicide. And one of the things she said to the students is for them to consider, you know, as they wrap up their teenage years and enter into their profession, whatever their talents and whatever their career aspirations, how can they put those to the service of the vulnerable and the sick and the needy? And she said, hey, if you are a good chef, you love to cook, why not work in a care home or a hospital and make better food for the sick? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a penchant for beauty and interior design, why not be a graphic designer in a hospice center or palliative care yes. ward to make that place more beautiful? And so I would just encourage your listeners, you know, wherever they are in life and whatever one's particular talents and skills to think how can these be put to the service of the vulnerable around me Mm -hmm. excellent so stephanie gray connors thank you so much for taking the time to do this Uh, start with what 10 principles for thinking about assisted suicide thank you once again stephanie you're welcome thanks so much mark this concludes Part three of my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors. 
I again invite you to go to Stephanie's website, loveunleasheslife.com, where you can order her book, Start With What? Ten Principles for Thinking About Assisted Suicide. The last story told by Stephanie Gray Connors was very inspiring in so many ways. One of the many ways I found it inspiring is that it was couched in the wistfulness of baseball. And my interview with Stephanie Gray Connors took place shortly before opening day. Please pardon me for becoming a little tangential, but the beauty of baseball reminds me so much of the beauty of Catholicism. Bishop Robert Barron of Los Angeles, popular speaker and author, often speaks of his love for baseball. The thing about baseball, he says, is that it is useless. Baseball is a waste of time. I'm not trying to get somewhere else or accomplish anything else. I'm just contemplating the beauty of this game. And that's the highest compliment I can give. The Mass, he concludes, is what is utterly beautiful for its own sake. I am reminded of the beauty of the Cathedral of Baseball, Fenway Park. I especially remember as a young boy making my way up the ramp for the first time into the Sea of Green, that is Fenway Park. From the green grass to the green monster, it was a mystical experience. I think it was 1957, that first trip to the ballpark for me, and my first vivid baseball memory. Seated along the third baseline, I had a great view of Frank Malzone. Red Sox Hall of Fame third baseman, who stabbed a wicked one-hopper and calmly threw the runner out at first base. That was beautiful. That was majestic. That was useless. That was a joy in and of itself. I have been mesmerized by baseball ever since. Catholicism is filled with mystique and miracles, just like baseball. I have witnessed at least two miracles while perched in the cramped wooden seats in baseball's most beloved ballpark. The first miracle is known by all Red Sox fans. It was Game 4 of the 2004 American League Championship Series against the New York Yankees. The Red Sox were down three games to none and were about to be swept by the hated Yankees when Dave Roberts stole second base and scored on a base hit to tie the game in the bottom of the ninth. A few innings later, the game was won in the bottom of the 12th on a big poppy walk-off home run. 
The Sox proceeded to win the next seven games, finally defeating their nemesis, and then going on to win the World Series by defeating the St. Louis Cardinals. That was a baseball miracle. And it may have been the first time in history that something stolen resulted in a miracle. This is not to mention the fact that it was not even sinful to defeat a team named after St. Louis and Cardinals. So after losing three consecutive games to the Yankees, the Sox proceeded to win eight straight. It is worth noting that the number eight biblically represents a new beginning. 2004 was indeed a new beginning for the Boston Red Sox. Then there was the 777 Miracle Game, Game 5 of the American League Championship Series against Tampa Bay in 2008, a game that I was also blessed to attend. The Red Sox trailed by seven runs in the seventh inning with just seven outs left, and they rallied to beat Tampa Bay eight to seven. Never was the number seven so perfect. And speaking of important numbers, you can't talk Red Sox baseball without talking about number nine, Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. It is so appropriate that the beautiful game with nine innings and nine positions has its best hitter wearing number nine. Baseball, like Catholicism, is not only about miracles. It is about ritual. Before admittance to Fenway Park, my grandchildren are quizzed as to who is the greatest hitter who ever lived. The correct answer led to admission to baseball's shrine. By contrast, football is an entertaining sport, but it is hard to call it beautiful. As author and political commentator George Will has said, football combines two of the worst things in American life. It is violence punctuated by committee meetings. I would furthermore note that football is a finite sport. It is imprisoned by a clock. Baseball reflects the infinite, where each game could theoretically last forever. I am always perplexed when people express that they are not religious, but they are spiritual. You see, they don't like all those rules. But this is like saying you love baseball except for the rules. The rules of baseball transform the activities of hitting and catching a ball into a sublime and transcendent experience. Baseball 
sort of like Catholicism, creates reality. Bishop Barron explains how the words of consecration change ordinary bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. He relates, I use the example of a baseball umpire who calls somebody out. You can express your opinion about what happened at that play at second base, but the umpire's words have actually changed the game. The game changes because of his words. He is indeed out because the umpire stated it so. Now think of God's speech. In the book of Genesis, it's by speech that God makes the whole world. God said, let there be light, and there was. God doesn't describe reality. His speech creates reality. That's the point. Continues Bishop Barron, what Jesus says is so. The night before he dies, he takes the Passover bread and says, This is my body. That's not just engaging in symbolic speech, but that's the divine law. God is speaking something into being. The Logos seizes that bread from the very root of its being and changes it by the power of the word. In conclusion, Bishop Barron states, in the Council of Trent it says, how does Christ become really present? The answer is by the power of the words. Some words convey a transcendent truth. Other words, like the weasel words of end-of-life options, convey lies and deception and are ultimately authored by the father of lies. I would like to remind you that the Massachusetts legislature is considering another assisted suicide bill euphemistically called end-of-life options. Please call your state representative and senator today at 617-722-2000. Tell them we already have the end-of-life options of hospice and palliative care. Tell them you want your doctor to continue to be a healer and a comforter, not a killer. Until next time, remember, we should always treat life with care and respect. And at the very least, we should first do no harm. Thank you for tuning in to First Do No Harm. Dr. Rollo welcomes your questions and comments. You may contact him at markrollo978 at gmail.com. 
That's M-A-R-K-R-O-L-L-O 978 at gmail.com. Thank you, and until next week, remember, first, do no harm.